Hey, it's Andrew. Just quickly before we start this episode, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing Podcast. Now, I don't need to explain what it's all about because the name of it is so good, but here's why I like it. Firstly, the hosts not only know what they're talking about because they've been in the cybersecurity marketing world for so long, but also Jenna and Maria make it fun. They have personalities that come out in the podcast and it draws you in. And secondly, they get great guests and together they make super useful episodes. My recent favorites were the one with Ross Halliluk, who is a marketer, but also just published the book Cyber for Builders, all about how to start a cybersecurity company. Or the one with Joe Evangelisto, the CISO at NetSpy. Or even the one all about telling stories in cybersecurity with Mitch Main. I could go on with quite a few more. And by the way, I'm not getting paid for this. I just really enjoy Gianna and Maria's show. Check it out. It's the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing Podcast. Now, on with this episode. Welcome to the Sales Bluebird Podcast, which exists because at cybersecurity companies, it's hard to get to a repeatable sales process and then scale the business. Sales Bluebird gives you tips, tricks, experiences, examples, ideas, and inspiration from people who know a thing or can about building great cybersecurity companies. I am your host, Andrew Monahan, and today we have a very different type of episode. I've got two guests uh, on the podcast with us this week. Um, First of all is uh, Mike Prevett. Mike's the CISO at Passport. Mike, you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. Mike is a multi-time CISO, uh, advisor to startups, and works with VCs as well, uh, looking to invest in some uh, cybersecurity early-stage startups. And he is also the founder at Return on Security, a great resource about the business and funding and trends going on inside our world of cyber. Also joining us today is Ben Halpert. Ben is a CISO at Groupon. Uh, ben, do you want to say hi? Hello, hello. Ah, good. And uh, Ben is also a multi-time CISO, advisor to startups, and he's currently also the founder of Savvy, Savvy Cyber Kids, which is all about educating our children about the do's and don'ts and good things and bad things about being online. Uh, so welcome both of you to the episode. Topic today is a little bit different. So on Wednesday evening, the news came out of California to San Francisco that the former Uber CISO, Joe Sullivan, was convicted on charges stemming from a cover-up of a 2016 data breach at Uber. Uh, the official charges were obstruction of proceedings of the FTC and misprision, I think that's how you pronounce it, of felony. And for those of you like me that have no idea what that means, it's actually when a crime occurs that someone knows a felony has been committed but fails to inform the authorities about it. And the U.S. attorney in San Francisco, Stephanie Hines, said, Sullivan affirmatively worked to hide the data breach from the Federal Trade Commission and took steps to prevent the hackers from being caught. We will not tolerate concealment of important information from the public by corporate executives more interested in protecting their reputation and that of their employers than in protecting users. Where such conduct violates the federal law, it will be prosecuted. Uh, he hasn't been sentenced, 
but it looks like based on the reporting from the case, he's facing possibly a maximum of eight years in prison, um, split between the two uh, charges. And somewhat interestingly, I think, is that Sullivan actually once worked as a prosecutor for the same district, uh, the Northern District of California, working on these types of cases. Um, the details that, that I've got are really only from the reporting. So take, take from that what you will. Um, and I think it stems from the idea that Uber wanted to characterize the event as a bug bounty event and not a breach. Um, he actually paid the hackers $100,000. The usual cap on bug bounty payments was just $10,000. And he had them sign an NDA as part of the process. One thing that came out in the reporting was that there were edits to the NDA. I wasn't quite clear whether it was after the fact or the standard maybe bug bounty NDA had been edited before it was sent. I'm not quite sure, but that seems to be a a key part of this. Um, What's interesting is it doesn't seem to have been a cover-up internally at Uber at the time. Uh, Travis uh, Kalanick was the CEO, and he knew he was informed as was a lawyer, but not the general counsel. So a lawyer was involved. Uh, and Kalanick was the one that actually approved the strategy of giving the $100,000 payment and getting them to sign the NDA. And uh, I'll finally say that if I get to read the tea leaves on the community, the cybersecurity community, the commentary is going on over the last day in a bit, um, I might unfairly put it in two camps. One is a bit of outrage about the idea of a CISO being scapegoated, uh, complete lack of accountability from the other executives who were involved. Why is this the person that's being convicted and charged and not the other people that knew about it and authorized it? Um, and then what does this mean for security when you know one of the downsides to your job uh, with the support of your company is you end up going to jail? And the other uh, side of this that I've seen a little bit about is Look, the dude covered it up from federal authorities. What do you expect? So a lot going on, uh, big news in our world. Uh, ben, I'll throw it over to you first of all. What, what's your thoughts, first of all, as, as the news came out and you had the chance to really digest this? Yeah, so the first thing I thought about was what it means for all currently sitting CISOs and all CISOs in the future. Um, you know, that means more of a microscope, more of a strong hand when it comes to uh, breach notification, uh, potentially new legislation that's going to come down. And so that's what I thought of uh, initially. I don't know Joe Sullivan personally. I uh, obviously don't know anything beyond what I've read in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera, um, about the case. I haven't seen you know the actual evidence or read the actual testimony. Um, but one of the things that that caught my eye was that the GC wasn't notified. And so that to me was very surprising in, you know, my, in my career, I've always made it a point that the GC and I are like best friends because there are so many things that I run by GC as well as other attorneys uh, based on what's happening. And so that's just something that I've learned over the years. And actually, you know, I, I kind of put uh, security legal and human resources like in a bucket together where you have to be have really really close relationships with all three of those organizations because you're always dealing with something a potential something whether it's a it's a potential event a potential incident um a poten- an investigation on potential claims of some sort so it's it's part of what we do 
Um, you know, and so that that was a little surprising to me. I don't know, Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Mike, did you catch up uh, catch that as well? I did, you know, and uh, I'm a similar situation as Ben. You know, I, I didn't read any of the testimony notes, only know what's been publicly released. Um, I have seen the outrage uh, on both sides of the arguments, whether like, hey, I can't believe this happened, and versus like, hey, no, you know, duh, because he didn't uh, tell the appropriate authorities, this is what you get. Um, I'm sure the truth lies somewhere in the middle of all those. Um, you know, my, I had similar reactions to begin with is like, man, this means a lot less people are going to want to go in this field. Good um, because now this field carries with it a, a, a price tag or could carry a price tag with it that no other field carries in the civilian world. Um, so it's this, it's a equivalent of like hazard uh, <laughs> duty on um, something like this, like one wrong mistake or wrong, one wrong set of actions, even if they're uh, done in good intent, or even if they're uh, had the right parties involved, it could lead to a, a very real negative outcome outside of your job. Um, but obviously it's easy to say that from an abstract standpoint without seeing the real facts on the ground. Um, and looking at the, at what the prosecution focused on, it seemed like they were really just focused on like um, the lack of uh, notification to these governing bodies. I think that was probably the biggest, uh, biggest issue they had. Let me ask you then, cause I'm, I'm, you know, somewhat informed, but not nearly as informed as you guys are. So something like this, let's put ourselves different company, I don't know, made up company, San Jose rather than San Francisco. And you're sitting there as a CISO and you're, you're, you're contacted by some ransomware group and they're asking for money in exchange for your data back. What is your actual obligation to tell anyone outside the company? Is there legal obligations? Is it the right thing to do? What's your view on that? Uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, you know, I, I'd say it obviously comes down to, you know, wh- who are you governed by and what uh, what state and federal authorities are you beholden to in that regard? So uh, one, you have to determine, is it real? Um, and like, how can you validate that it's real from the people who are contacting you? Um, after you have that um, verification that it is real or real enough, then I think you have to kick off immediately go back to what Ben said, like get back to your, uh, your legal partners very, very quickly internally and start talking with their counsel. And then in any retained counsel they have externally to say what one, let's pour through all the contracts we have with our customers and third parties, and then find out specifically who we have to, uh, contact if it meets a certain threshold. Um, I think, uh, you know, that there, there are different levels of thresholds in terms of like record counts or types of data per state, uh, or per contract that require you then to have to take certain notification processes, or even in some cases pay damages for um, like credit monitoring and the like. Um, but the, it's really going to be a fact finding mission. Once you determine it is actually a legitimate issue uh, to see who you got to notify. Yeah, so, so I'd, I'd add to that, that the first time or the second time or the 15th or the 20th time you get an, a note like that or a notification like that, because all of us have gotten these kind of notifications at the companies that we're with shouldn't be that first time shouldn't be when you're like, okay, what do I do now? So you right. should have a documented process. You should have it written, written down. That's part of normal incident response, right? So what's the playbook? Have you practiced this playbook? This is very, very common. And so, you know, having, you know, going through a tabletop exercise uh, at least to figure out, who are the right people? Who should be on this? Who do we communicate with? So that in the end, it's not a guesswork. Like it, 
maybe there's a reason the GC was left out. Maybe that was part of a documented response plan that someone on the legal team gets looped in, but not the GC. Again, we don't know. Um, where does the decision-making happen, right? Is it the CISO's job to make a decision like that on behalf of the company? Or is it a CISO's job to advise the CEO and give his opinion to the GC and give his opinion about what's happening to the CEO and let them make the GC from the risk-based decision side, from the legal perspective, and the CEO for the one ultimately responsible for the continuity of business, right? To make sure that business survives and thrives. Is it really a CISO's job to do that? Or is it really more uh, to advise and to give opinions and to give options, but not the ultimate decision maker? So I'd be interested to see what comes out, you know, in that kind of aspect going forward. But Ben, it seems to me that, uh, you know, these ransomware attacks, if you believe the news, happen every day of the week to multiple companies all the time. Yeah. Um, and as far as I can tell, you know, the, their strategy is not to ask for a shit ton of money. So there's actually quite an easy decision for the company to go, yeah, we'll, we'll pay them 20K, 50K, 100K, whatever it might be, right? And it's not such a big deal. So this is happening all the time. Why? I can't imagine that the FTC is getting notified of every single incident that ever happens in, in the U.S. Um, yeah. Am I right? Or is this, is this an exception to that? Or are people just doing it and the FTC are not being told? So, so based on what I've read, um, this one is a little bit of an outlier because there was already a data breach years prior at Uber. And because of that, they are now under obligation as a company to report to the FTC if the FTC if and when this happens again. And so most companies that haven't been through a breach that have been found potentially negligent in the past don't have that requirement. Right. If they're in a certain industry, they do. But for generally, most companies don't have the obligation to actually notify the FTC. Ben, we've, you might be able to hear us, but we can't hear you anymore. I think you're back now. Can we hear you? Oh, I'm back. If you can hear me. Yeah, yeah. we can hear you. Okay. Um, so I'll just, I'll just cut that bit, uh, that last bit, uh, the right point. And Mike, I'll come on to you with a question right now. Um, so, Mike, when you think about what we know about the process they went through, I'm wondering, as the CISO at Uber, what would he gain from, you know, somehow trying to do something a little bit differently, right? Is he, is he just trying to protect the company? Is there something else that might be in it for him? I, I was trying to understand his motivation for maybe, uh, let's say, blurring the lines a little bit. Yeah, I wondered that as well. Um, you know, I can't see it, it being like a personal cover up. I can't see it being trying to save reputation uh, for himself personally. And the, the job of the CISO often is to bring forth that uncomfortable picture of risk, uh, even if it's actualized in this case. Um, so I, I think um, I, I'm not sure that were the that was the motivations. Like I do know that we lived in a different time frame back in in 2016, and especially since they already had a prior breach. Um, you know, as the years have gone on since then, breaches have not only been exponentially uh, performed all throughout the world, but the public seems to care a whole lot less about it in general. Uh, the public sentiment of it is. Uh, in fact, you can even see direct correlations so after companies get breached. If they're publicly traded, their stocks end up trading up after hours. 
Uh, and it's almost like a sigh of relief, like, okay, we got that out of the way. Um, on to the next thing. Um, so it's a really strange uh, phenomenon. So I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of like panic in terms of, hey, this is this could be extremely damaging for our company. Uh, and then obviously his livelihood and everyone else's livelihood at the company. Um, I think this is the time they were pretty in stark competition with uh, with Lyft, um, especially coming off the heels of the previous CEO who had some very tumultuous uh, headlines um, and the culture they created. So there's there's probably a lot of uh, gray wrapped up in that in general, but, um, it, it didn't seem like it was to, to cover up anything or to, or to do any kind of wrongdoing just from the outside. Yeah. And it seems like in the timeline that they were talking about that, uh, when the new CEO came in, uh, Dara, he kind of find out more about the details. He was, he felt like he was initially misled. I think he testified and then he let uh, Joe go, but it all, all happened under the previous CEO, Travis, uh, Kalanick, as you said, as a, certain reputation uh, about how he ran the company. But Ben, you know, going back to you on this, um, you know, it seems like he, he, he talked to, except for the GC, he talked to the CEO, is established in the evidence that he got the sign off that this was a strategy to go by. And yet somehow he's the one being left out to dry on this. Um, doesn't seem like that's how his corporate governance should work. Yeah, no, uh, I agree with that statement completely. Um, you know, if, if he was given direction from the CEO to go, you know, it like maybe Joe presented two options, three options, four options on how to go forward. And the former CEO said, let's go this route. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I didn't hear about that. If that came out during the trial or not, super curious if something like that comes out in the end. Um, again, was Joe the ultimate decision maker that made the choice in a silo and just said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. FYI. You know, or was there more of a governance structure in place, which just based on this, it sounds like there wasn't right when you have other stakeholders involved in the conversation so they can you know, provide opinion and expertise in a certain area um, for a company how to move forward. Well, let's draw a line under what happened and then let's think about what should happen going forward. Um, and Ben, you said that was your first first reaction was what does this mean? Right. What do we have to change? Yeah. What, what's your initial conclusions about you know what you see and you said microscope you talked about perhaps new legislation what what do you think is going to happen yeah so you know there's already legislation and something that you know we took a look at um, that has recently come out of India where you actually have now a very short time window when you need to notify the Indian authorities of a potential breach of constituent data. And so it's no longer like after the fact when you've made that determination, but it's letting a government entity know in some country that, hey, we're you know investigating potentially something that could be something or could not be something, but we're letting you know so we stay in compliance. So I think more of that will probably end up being the end result of, of what we see as opposed to after the fact so that the, you know, the, pol the politicians can say they're doing more to help protect the people's information. Whether they are or not, it's a completely different story, but that's the optics they go for. What would you say, Mike? Yeah, I'd agree with that too. I think there'll be a tighter squeeze on um, on people who lead security functions at companies. Um, you've already kind of seen this with a squeeze on CEOs in Capitol Hill, them pushing them saying, hey, CEOs can be personally fined and accountable uh, for data breaches. Um, 
even though often they're typically very far removed from the day-to-day operations of a security program, as they should be. They have other other things to focus on. Um, But I think we'll see an overcorrection on that point. Um, I think on the security side, I think we'll we'll see a lot more people be extremely guarded um, in terms of like day-to-day activities, like document everything in email, uh, a lot more pro- protesting, a lot more, I don't agree with this in writing. Uh, I, yeah, a lot more, I told you so. <laughs> um, I, I think honestly, it's, it's going to create some, some negative um, repercussions and culture in certain places, just because it's going to be adversarial uh, in nature, because everyone's going to be worried. Like, is the, the notification or email I do or don't send or the meeting I, I do or don't have going to be the last one or the one that puts me over into, you know, criminal activity. Um, and that's not a good, uh, area to focus on when there's, uh, there's a lot more like real work to be done. Um, so I, I think, um, I think that's pretty common though, the way, especially our, our, our modern society works is event happens, regulation comes in with too strong of a hand, uh, to force some activities. And then, uh, some maybe, uh, consequences come out of that, that aren't as intended. Um, and I think that could be uh, happening here. And Ben, when you said you looked at the, these laws out of India, is, is, the, is there some sort of groundswell that's the sort of thing that we should have over here? Or is it just something that you guys were looking at because you got operations over there? No, it, you know, for the latter, definitely. So, um, but I think that's probably something that we're going to see. We're going to see more heavy handed um, when it comes to how companies deal with potential incidents. I I. I I did latch onto the word potential incidents because uh, potential covers a lot of different things, right? To, as uh, as you said, I think Mike at the start, you know, your first thing is you got to determine is this even real. Um, yeah. So, at what point does he, do you say like, this is now a potential incident as opposed to a a whatever before that or a whatever after that? Kind of poses an interesting question about you inundate the. Uh, the was it the Northern California district with a whole bunch of potential incidents and see what they do or or how do you kind of manage that process? Um, yeah. I, I think yeah. it puts an interesting onus if there isn't already on on the notification side, right? That's where you get latched onto, I think, both of you right there. The fact that we have breaches and we have to deal with them is, you know, that's going to not going to change, but it's really how we deal with notification and make sure the right authorities are involved. And I imagine if I was a CISO, I'd be erring on the side of over, over without any laws even, I might be over um, notifying and informing as opposed to under notifying and informing. So, and I, so the, uh, the potential issue with over notifying is that um, we now have the potential, again, sorry for using that word again, but to actually overload the authorities right? So they don't have enough staff, right? The FBI doesn't have enough staff if we're notifying on every single potential, uh, you know, international incident or, you know, uh, cross state line incident that may be occurring. They, they can't deal with that. So how would they even go through and figure out, you know, what's legitimate that they should, should work on? And plus, once you do notify, you actually are more hands off at that point, right? They come in and they, if they make the determination that, yeah, it's going to be a federal case, you know, they're in charge and your teams provide support as asked, but they are in charge. So it's, it's very different. Um, but that's, but that's why companies need to have a mature incident response process. So that, that triage process from initial contact of, Hey, we just breached your site or we just, um, you know, breached your S3 bucket, or we just found X, whatever it may be. Um, you know, you should have that, 
that triage process nailed down so that everyone knows what they're doing and you can make a quick determination whether they're full of it or not. And just so I know, um, notification of the authorities is not the same as notifying the public, right? The two are not, one does not mean the other one has to happen. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's typically true. Uh, it doesn't mean that once you notify a public, like a, an, another authority, doesn't mean they won't also notify the public. Um, it d- really depends on the industry you're in. Uh, some of this stuff is common knowledge and it'll be posted like government websites, um, just more of as a, uh, as a communication. Uh, but no, it doesn't mean that like the whole world knows. Uh, but you know that that aspect of public communication plays into the whole crisis management aspect of it as well. And this typically that's should be a, a very big part of your incident response processes. Who's going to make the comment? Like, who's going to talk to the media if that's the case? Who's going to publish the post on the website if you're going to have one? Uh, what messaging will you send your customers uh, that may or may not be public but expect it to be shared? Um, so all that has to be uh, either pre, pre-written or, or canned in such a way that uh, you guys can make decisions on when and if you, you pull the communications trigger externally. And I imagine there's an expectation of lawsuits going to flood in after that, right? Which is why you got to word it carefully and be somewhat careful about who knows. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And, and I'll, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. Oh, no. I was just going to say, just to expand on, on that one point that you said, Mike, that when you do notify an agency, it becomes public eventually. So they won't make a public announcement about it, but it will fall under freedom of information requests. Some states publish a listing of companies that have notified them. So if you're going to communicate to an agency, you should also be working with communication and public relations teams because you do need to put out something and be proactive as well. Because if it looks like you're hiding something, then it's even worse for company reputation. I want to wrap up with one uh, question, comment, I guess. Um, one of the things that seems to be well known at the time that the culture at, at Uber was I don't know, pretty toxic, let's say. There's a lot of um, things going on. You, I, I hear people talking commentary-wise about that that era in Uber is one where, you know, a lot of different subgroups in the company were marginalized and treated pretty, pretty badly. I wonder what it says about, you know, if you're going in for a job at a CISO, how important it is to screen for culture? Because it's, you know, again, it might be shitty to work there, but, you know, people can be put up with that for various reasons. But uh, if the shittiness ends up, you go to jail, that's uh, that's not something worth putting up with, right? Yeah. I, I totally agree, and I, I think um, it's hard to know how how thorough their you know the hiring practices were. But it, uh, from all accounts, you know, from the marginalized groups, it uh, it wasn't very good. And then if it was, it wasn't good when they got there, um, which is you know, it needs to be good on the in- entry point and while you're there. Um, you know, I think uh, I think it will make it some things harder um, to hire for across all uh, fields because um, if this is part of like a culture, and if you, if you see yourself in a in a highly regulated field uh, that may have these overreaching like consequences, um, the talent pool just may dry up for that space. It, it may be a lot harder to find people willing to go that far um, just for a job. Yeah, you know, I think if people feel like you know he's being wronged, um, mm-hmm. you know, if, if clearly there was some you know massive crime and all the rest of it, I think people get that. But if there is this underbelly of feeling in the community that he's being totally wronged and scapegoated and all the rest of it, I agree, right? You kind of you don't want to end up in that same situation. Um, so it'll be interesting yeah. to see what happens at sentencing and what else comes out in the wash uh, between now and then and maybe afterwards. So um, Andrew, I, I wanted to add um, to your point about culture. 
And so my suggestion would be to any security professional that's out there, even if they're not going for a CISO position, but any position within um, a security organization, part of your questions that you should prepare before your interview should relate to culture, should relate to, hey, can you tell me, do you have a documented incident response plan? Who is, you know, who are the, the job roles that are actually listed that participate? Is there a risk management governance committee? You know, how are decisions made when it broadly affects the organization? So you could just ask a few questions and, and see if you get like a stare back, you know, or if you actually get um, a pretty decent response to, you know, just do a, a really short, you know, quick test of, uh, of security culture. If the answer is, yeah, that's why you're here to create all that, that might not be what you want to walk into, right? <laughs> in 2022. Well, it might be an opportunity for you to build something out that's that's really rewarding for yourself. If you're ready for that. If, that's what you want. If, if you get the right support to do it. The right, way. Yeah, right. Well, listen, uh, gents, with that, uh, Mike, thanks for joining. Ben, thanks for joining. Uh, really good discussion, very timely. We'll be watching this over the coming weeks and see what happens. It would mean a lot to me and to the continued growth of the show if you could help get the word out. So how do you do that easily? There are two ways. Firstly, just simply send a link to a friend. Send a link to the show, to this episode. Um, You can email it, text it, Slack it, whatever works for you and is easy for you. The second way is to leave a super quick rating. And sometimes that can seem complicated, so I've made it as easy for you as I can. You simply have to go to ratethispodcast.com slash cyber. That's ratethispodcast.com slash cyber and explains exactly how to do it. Either of these ways will take you less than 30 seconds to do and it will mean the world to me. So thank you.